Hello, welcome to the Offspring Magazine, the podcast. I am Andres Tangarife from the Max Planck Institute for Biogeochemistry in Jena, and for the first time I will be your host. I hope not to get retired after it. In today's episode, we will talk to Professor Susan Trombor, who is currently the director of the Biogeochemical Processes Department and former managing director of this MPI. She is an expert researcher in the field of isotopes and tracers to study the exchange of energy, water, and greenhouse gases between terrestrial ecosystems and the atmosphere. This podcast will be divided in two episodes. Today, we will have a conversation about her scientific career, the main questions trying to be solved about the Amazon rainforest, also about some of the projects in which the Institute has been researching on during the last decade and how they are related to the main environmental challenges that humankind is currently facing, such as deforestation, greenhouse gas increase and climate change. And within these topics, we will discuss a bit on how lifestyle and policies have a big implication on the fragile balance between the ecological, economic and human systems. For the second episode that we will release next week, we will dive into the concept of economic degrowth as well as on the role that scientists have in our society. These are going to be very interesting episodes with a bit of friendly debate, so stay tuned and enjoy them. Okay, so, well, um, first of all, thank you very much for accepting this invitation to have this conversation. Uh, it's the first time that uh, the Max Planck Institute for Biogeochemistry is in the podcast of the, of the PhD net, okay. the students of the, of the Max Planck Society. So I want to welcome you to, to this conversation and thank you very much for accepting. Thanks, happy to be here. So. Yeah. So today we are going to talk about uh, several topics, uh, about a bit of, of your uh, sci- uh, scientist career, a bit about the role of scientists in, in our society, and about some hot topics like climate change, and what the institute, uh, this institute, what's the mission of uh, mm-hmm. the Biogeochemistry Institute in, yeah. Yeah, in, in, in the world. So, um, please, uh, Sue, tell us a little bit about, about you. So, what did you study? Why did you choose this, uh, this path in your life? Okay. <laughs> so, um, well, I studied geology um, largely because I had trouble. Uh, it was the subject I did the worst in in school. So, I, I found it that I had to think things through instead of memorizing the answers. And so I thought it was more fun. Um, And then uh, I fell in love with uh, the use of isotopes to tell the age of the earth, for example, from minerals in our meteorite. It was so clever and so so elegant that I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to measure isotopes. And then I applied for graduate schools. I was following my boyfriend at the time, uh-huh. which maybe is not the best reason to choose a graduate school, but I was luckily, I ended up at uh, Lamont Doherty Geological Observatory mm-hmm. and uh, had a wonderful advisor, Wally Broker, and he worked mostly on carbon dioxide, the carbon cycle, and climate change. And so I worked on, I started working on that, and from that, with the isotopes, I did carbon-14, um, 
and found a career that way. So. Mm. Yeah. So that was uh, sorry. Bachelor is in geology, and then you you did uh, your PhD in geochemistry. Geochemistry uh, in the United States, right? Yeah. At okay. Columbia University in New York mm. City, and then uh, then I came to Switzerland for a postdoc for two years, largely because the method of measuring radiocarbon had this tremendous uh, advance just when I was doing my PhD thesis where we could use accelerators to measure carbon-14 atoms directly instead of waiting for them to decay. So you could measure much smaller samples. And so we could, for example, measure the Shroud of Turin. You know, that was what I did as a postdoc. Mm -hmm. um, or uh, small pieces of artifacts to figure out how old they were. But also then I could measure my own samples uh, in that lab. So for a couple of years, I had to follow these high physics, nuclear physics laboratories basically and be there to make my measurement. And so I went from the ETH in Zurich to Lawrence Livermore Lab in the US to build up another lab there. And then I ended up staying in California for 20 years as a faculty member mm -hmm. at UC Irvine. Yeah. So Sue, you have, you have been in countless projects. So I, I, I suppose that you have traveled to many parts of the world. That's a very nice quality of the field of natural sciences. So what has been this project that you have worked in that you consider, well, this changed my, my life or changed my understanding of what, I, what, what, what you were studying? Okay, so I started out uh, my thesis advisor was mostly working in the oceans because on long time scales the oceans control the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere mm -hmm. and that at the time was what we were doing so I spent uh, two years on ships traveling to many places including Antarctica to wow. measure uh, gases in seawater and then we had a long talk and, he, and you know a lot of his students had basically filled up the, the, all the universities with chemical oceanographers where all his students um, in every department, and there weren't too many jobs left. So he said, why don't you work in soils? So I went to work in soils, but I knew nothing about mm -hmm. them. And I think the, the only progress I ever made was I went to the fields with experts. And so I did two, that in two places, Probably the one where it was the most fun was my first uh, trip to Brazilian rainforest. And with um, Eric Davidson and Dan Napstad, they were both ecologists. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of questions about carbon cycling and how fast it was going in soils and in, in trees. And I said, oh, carbon-14 can tell you all that. I can answer all your questions very easily. So um, that was this big... Uh, breakthrough for all of us and I think what was great was we each brought our I, you know I did my my one measurement that I brought everywhere and mm -hmm. they had their good questions and together we could make better science and really cutting edge science and I think to me that's the lesson of most of my career is I don't know everything but I have this one tool that I know a lot about and I can go broadly and work with lots of different people and 
usually find a way to help answer one of their key questions. Yeah, and about those those key questions that Radio Carbon can answer, uh -huh. we, we are going to enter, okay. uh, we are going to discuss more in depth uh, later on. Um, but uh, this uh, opens a doubt for me and is, okay, you have been from the Antarctic to the rainforest, the Amazon rainforest, what place is still missing for you to, to visit? <laughs> well, lots of places. Um, I'd like to, uh, to go places where others haven't measured before because I'd like to say here in Germany, every tree has, you know, somebody's at least three or four <laughs> tags on it because it's being measured by three or four very smart scientists. But if I go to the rainforest, there are many, many mm -hmm. trees and not so many scientists. Right. So, uh, so it's, it's easier to do something new there. And also, we need to understand global responses, not just what temperate forests will do. So we have to go outside of our backyards um, and also train the people who live there to do these measurements as well. So, um, so I don't know. I have never been to Australia, mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to go, but uh, the pandemic got in the way. Uh, I'd love to go to other parts of the Amazon than I've seen already. So I've mostly been in the eastern and central Amazon, but mm -hmm. never in the west, especially Peru and Colombia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so those are places I'd like to see. All right. Uh, well, so um, now let's enter a little bit into the uh, into the role of the of this institute. So you have been in in the MPI for biogeochemistry already for fourteen years, more or less, like since two thousand nine. Yeah. And you have um, you were able to build from scratch the biogeochemical processes department. So to say you have been in the in this uh... not totally <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean the founding director Ernst Detlef Schultzer he really built the department mm -hmm. um, and I inherited a lot of really good people mostly the technical mm -hmm. staff but also I came here partly because of the people that were working here in the institute already because at, as a faculty member in a you know in a university i could do just my measurements and i couldn't do a lot of other things and mm -hmm. i didn't have a lot of colleagues nearby so i came here partly to work with uh, people like marcus reichstein who was and, and Zenka Zela, who are doing the modeling mm -hmm. um, and also with garrett gleichsner who was doing all this really nice organic chemistry so by coming here, I could expand the number of tools that I could use and apply, um, especially also with the really excellent facilities here. So I could measure almost anything, whereas in my old job, I couldn't, I could only measure carbon-14. <laughs> so. Yeah. So back then in 2009, what were the... Um, the hot topics of this uh, department or of the institute and what are the hot topics now? So how, how these um, focuses have changed uh, yeah. a long time? So the hot topic has, as, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's been the same since <laughs> I was a PhD student. We're trying to 
understand where the carbon we put in the atmosphere goes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my advisor's work was all about how much is dissolving in the oceans. So we know that fairly well. And it's clear that that the biosphere is, you know, we're deforesting and adding carbon to the atmosphere, but we're also removing it from the atmosphere, either through regrowth of forests or CO2 fertilization or other processes that we don't know so well. And that's the part that I'm trying to look at is, you know, what processes are taking the carbon out of the atmosphere? How long can we expect them to do it? And where is that carbon being stored? I would say we still don't know the answer to that completely, mm. even since I was a grad student. And of course, the whole system's changing the whole time. Rates of yeah. deforestation have gone up and down and up again. <laughs> and, uh, and then um, also what we think about CO2 fertilization is also changing. So um, I think that's been sort of the background of most of my work is you know, trying to understand how long carbon stays in ecosystems as a measure of how much of a carbon sink could they be. And also looking at the rates of disturbance and recovery. Um, so not just uh, deforestation, but what happens to the land after deforestation. Do we regrow a forest or mm -hmm. does it do something else? And with uh, David Orquiza now we're looking at wind throw in the whole Amazon as kind of a disturbance that influences forest structure and carbon balance at landscape scales. So that's kind of the long-term hot topic. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but the, I think what's happened since I moved here is that it's become much more clear. I mean, in 2009, we knew already that global warming was unequivocal. We could see it. Um, but what's happened since is we're starting to understand a little bit more what the consequences might mean mm -hmm. because we have uh, especially I think more emphasis on extreme events because we've been living through them yep. droughts and floods and and what those mean for ecosystems how resilient they are um, to those disturbances and and what that means going forward that it's all become a little more urgent in the last decade, I would say. Yeah. So in that sense, um, the Amazon rainforest plays an important role in, in all the system. And almost, I don't know, a big part of the, of the investigations and a big part of the uh, researchers in this institute have to do with, uh, have to do with a topic in the Amazon, in yeah. the Amazon rainforest. Um, the, this institute is co-coordinating the Amazon Toll Tower Observatory mm -hmm. plus other, um, let's say, monitoring stations in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, what's, what's the importance of, of measuring there? What, what's missing to, to understand? So the big question I would say for the Amazon is what's, what's its future going to look like? So. Mm -hmm. um, it's only 4% of the land area, but yeah. you know, it stores 200 billion tons of carbon in the vegetation and soils. It, it's responsible for about 16% of global photosynthesis. It has a third of the Earth's biodiversity, so it's an important place. Uh, it's obviously really important in 
cycling of energy and water. So the Amazon River is the biggest uh, river in the world, carries 200 trillion, I forget how many liters of water, it's a spare <laughs> drop for oceanographers. Uh, but it's also there, there's also the biggest sort of uh, what they call now flying rivers, these atmospheric mm. rivers. So there's also transport of water uh, from the ocean to the to feed the forests at the base of the Andes right. um, through being uh, recycled, you know, precipitated, evaporated, precipitated again. And um, because of that, it's really important for the rest of the globe what happens to to the forest system that's creating its own rainfall and cycling energy um, in these ways. So the, we, we have two, in our department, we have two major uh, things that we look at. One is ATO, so the Amazon Tall Tower Observatory. It's mostly in intact forests in the central Amazon, and it's looking at the forest sort of upwind going towards the coast. And um, during the wet season in particular, it's seeing these really pristine forests that have had very little in the way of recent uh, you know, deforestation or land conversion. And so there we're trying to understand, well, what does climate change mean for this forest? So tropical forests don't actually exist um, two degrees warmer than the forests that are there today. So, we really don't understand, we don't have an analog vegetation for a hot tropical forest hotter than mean annual temperatures of 28 mm. degrees. So that's, to me, that's a huge question, <laughs> what's going to happen? Um, and also how is climate change going to manifest itself? Does it mean, you know, it could mean that we have more energy for more storms and more wind throws and therefore a more dynamic kind of vegetation than we have now. It could also mean more fires. It could mean lots of things uh, that we haven't thought of that's not just the physiological response of one single tree to warmer temperatures. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and then, so there we're looking at interannual variations. You know, we've been through one big drought and uh, learned a lot about what that does to the carbon balance, but also to, you know, all of the different factors that allow these forests to make their own rainfall. So making gases that become aerosols, that become nuclei for condensation, that become clouds, that you know become the rainfall itself. So this forest is making its own rain and try, just understanding that process, we, we don't know the fundamentals, but Atto is gonna tell us. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then the second, uh, place we're working is actually in the arc of deforestation. So mm -hmm. people talk a lot about this potential for a tipping point that if it gets right. if it gets drier, then the forests won't have um, as much, you know, they might die off and might ha have enough water to evaporate again. What's the name of this? Uh... It's the savannization mm -hmm. hypothesis that uh, Carlos Noberry, you know, when you run a climate model and you take away 20% of the rainforest, then um, his argument is that you've disrupted the upstream water vapor that falls as precipitation downstream, so you dry out the forest to the extent that you might have more fires or whatever that degrades the vegetation mm -hmm. and maybe creates a savanna. So he argues that this is a tipping point that's not reversible, 
Um, and so I'm working with a group um, from UC Irvine, from Yale University, and, and an NGO called IPAM, um, where we're, they did a really nice experiment where they, they tried to create a savanna by burning forest. And, uh, and that forest, what, what we've learned is that once you start disturbing forests, they're vulnerable to more disturbance. And it's in a region that's already got a longer dry season because of land use change regionally. Uh -huh. uh, it's an area of soy expansion, soy agricultural expansion. So anyway, there we're kind of looking more in detail at this question of whether there's tipping points, what kinds of, once you have degraded forests, what kinds of processes are influencing their trajectories and what functions do they have? So for example, we have eddy covariance towers there that measure the fluxes of energy in water and heat. And these very degraded forests turn out to be very similar to the regular, the undegraded ones in terms of their processing of energy and water. They're a little bit less resilient, but um, in normal years, they're about the same. So the climate function may not be so affected, but certainly the diver biodiversity is very different. You have grasses intruding in, and you have much higher, lower biomass in these forests. So they're not the same forests, even if they have the right climate function, the other functions are gone. And that's what we're trying to unravel. Yeah. So speaking about tipping points, which is uh, it's in the debate now because what we are concerned of, uh, about in the in the future. So um, in this uh, border between the forest and the and the savanna, mm -hmm. um, it's it's like a on life experiment of how a tipping point could look like. What from preliminary results or from your opinion? Um, do you see any tipping point, how the Amazon forest could cross and yeah. have a big implication? Well, I think it's already from the human, from what humans have done, there's already been tremendous change. Mm -hmm. The question is, uh, I think a matter of time scale, like if we stopped and just left those soy fields follow, the, there will be a forest that regrows. And um, we know from looking at disturbance studies, you know, the, the biomass comes back quickly, these climate functions come back quickly, but the biodiversity can be a long, long time and we could lose things that, you know, we can lose species without even knowing we've, what they do or what, you know, that they're lost. So it depends if you want an impoverished system that still evaporates water, maybe a eucalyptus forest is enough, you know. Um, so I think uh, a lot of these questions are not as simple as, you know, we're going to cross this tipping point and all the uh -huh. forest is going to die. Even if we cross some tipping point, it's going to take decades, I think, for the change to really manifest itself. And it's, it's hard to know what's and to me, a tipping point is a irreversible change or one that has a huge amount of hysteresis where you change from one state suddenly to another, but it's going to take you a really long time to go back. And I don't, I'm not sure in the ecosystems there's this tipping point theory with savannas and, you know, we have savannas and 
tropical forests that have basically the same conditions and the idea that they can flip back and forth one to the other. But I don't know that we totally understand those processes. And I think a really important question is how long does it take mm -hmm. to go from one form to the other? And um, I don't know that we know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as a, as a geologist, as geologists are, so to say, trained to understand um, um, the evolution of the, of, of the Earth system in very long-term uh, timescales. And also to, uh, to comprehend the, the relation between atmosphere, geosphere, biosphere. So in the point that we are of our, yeah, let's say, evolution, do you think that um, climate change can can change the path of human of humans as as a species? Well, I think it has to. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, already, uh, well, what's changed the path of humans so far has been fossil fuels, right? So first, agricultural, uh, the you know, the use of agriculture, which. Um, kind of interestingly, the has been also linked to the rise of carbon dioxide at the end of the last glacial uh, period. So the carbon dioxide rose over a couple hundreds to thousands of years by about a hundred parts per million, which is the same as pre-industrial to today. And one argument is that that made agriculture possible because the plants had more CO2 and they could actually grow bigger seeds. And, um, and it is when agriculture started, basically, is in this post-glacial period. And since then, we've had these very stable conditions with small fluctuations, maybe of methane and CO2, but nothing, no big climate fluctuations. Um, of course, the Sahara was green, I guess, <laughs> 5,000 years ago. So there have been changes. But, um, but only since we started you know, mining fossil fuels and burning them do we really see these really rapid changes that are happening today. So, um, and that's influenced human societies in immeasurable ways. And I think we have to, we, you know, we have to ultimately find ways to switch to other forms of energy um, or live with a world that uh, has a lot different climate than what we're used to. This, this nice, long, stable period is over <laughs> for us. And so uh, I think if we've learned anything from the last decade is how vulnerable our infrastructure is and, and our to changes in th these extreme events, so flooding excess heat, um, and those things will surely cause some feedbacks between human behavior and <laughs> climate yeah. um, that I'm not sure we know what they are yet, but luckily uh, we have turned at least one corner with the price of solar energy declining so much and becoming at least competitive with other, other ways of generating electrical energy. So, you mentioned a topic that is very interesting and is uh, the, like the power of fossil fuels to modify um, well, the, enti the entire system, mm -hmm. as a climate and also our human development. And uh, 
fossil fuels yeah, are a driving factor of, of change in our, in our current society. And in order to, to decrease it, to decrease the, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere and yeah. uh, return to stable values, there have been different strategies in the, in the last decades. So some of them have focused on um, uh, reforestation, others in avoiding deforestation, others in reducing uh, fossil fuels emissions. What, what are the pitfalls that you think that we as uh, human beings are falling in yeah. terms of avoiding the, this uh, CO2 or greenhouse gases con uh, concentration? Well, I think the big one is the thought that we don't have to reduce fossil fuel emissions <laughs> and that nature-based solutions can do it all for us. It's very clear. I, I think the idea with that, that we can grow more forests or you know, uh, store carbon in soils, we can do those things, but there, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do is to say, mm -hmm. oh, okay, if you can store more carbon in soils, how long is it going to stay there before it comes back uh -huh. out again? Um, and what does that tell you about the capacity to store carbon in soil or in vegetation? And I think the problem is, there are two problems with the nature-based solutions. The first one is that they're never going to offset the, I mean, the maximum anybody can even calculate is maybe sequestering a gigaton of carbon or two more per year, but we're emitting 10 as fossil mm -hmm. fuels. So it's, it's never going to be enough. We have to reduce fossil fuel emissions. Um, but on the other hand, you'll never get to negative emissions without them. So, uh, so we still need to understand these. They're useful tools, mainly to get us through this period where you know, we need everything we can because reducing emissions is hard and we have a lot built into our infrastructure uh, that's going to be hard to uh, eliminate and, and also fast economic change is hard for people. Mm. It's just the way it is. So, um, so I'd say that's one of the big problems. Um, yeah, we have to get off fossil fuels. And I think they're so valuable for other things, like all of the plastic, you know, all of, so many things are made from fossil fuels, mm -hmm. from drugs to, uh, you know, you clothes, name it, yeah. clothes, no. yeah. And that, you know, and some of the chemicals, we don't know how to make them too many other ways. So I think, uh, you know, we waste a lot of fossil fuel by burning it. <laughs> That's future generations will say that. Yeah, so do you think, or what can you tell us about the positive uh, effects of, uh, in terms of CO2 emissions of the pandemic? Were there actual, actually the reductions in the CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere during this yeah. period that we stayed, let's say, emitting less? So it's radiation? a little bit of a mystery. I think the, I was just looking that up, there's something like 5% lower emissions of fossil fuels, but the CO2 in the atmosphere increased about the same as in previous mm -hmm. years. So, and then in 20, I mean, 2021, we have the highest uh, emissions 
ever. So it's not like we stayed low. We, you know, we had this. We kept growing. Brief dip <laughs> where people stopped driving their cars and flying in airplanes. Um, you know, it was maybe five percent is the estimate that I've seen. Um, and then the question is, why did CO two keep increasing? So there's some uh, question about you know whether sinks were lower. I think deforestation rates were higher in mm -hmm. 2020 than, than in previous years. So um, it could, could be that there's a little bit of makeup in deforestation for what we didn't do mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, other ways. And I think there's, uh, it's a good question. I, I think uh, we, somebody's gonna write a nice paper about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen a good explanation. Um, that, that's right, we're still trying to explain what happened. Yeah, in no, in, in economic crashes, you, you actually see it in the atmosphere pretty quickly. And so everyone was expecting to see it this time, mm -hmm. but they didn't. And so I think that's the, the mystery. Okay, that answer is, is to come in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so do you think that is, uh, uh, that is appropriate to set these... Uh, so some countries have set 2045 or 2050 as um the years when they are going to become carbon neutral uh meaning that the the emissions are going to be the same as the yeah. as the absorption let's say do you think we have time until then um, i mean that depends on what people do so uh, when people talk about the uncertainty in climate futures it's most of the uncertainty is what people do but then there's this secondary uncertainty. And that's, you know, if people do what they promised, then we'll get there, right? Mm. So, because they, what they promised was what would get them there. But so far, you know, everybody's kicking it a little further down the road. I don't think the pandemic helped. And, uh, you know, certainly wars and don't, don't help. Although I think high fossil fuel prices do help because people conserve when uh, it costs more when they won't conserve any other way. Um, so that's there. I think the thing we don't know, which is I worry about going forward, um, is the potential for warming to increase uh, CO2 losses from things that have nothing to do with people. So if we do have issues in you know, with lots of tree mortality and tropical forests and we lose a lot of biomass or there are a lot of fires, then those are sources that, you know, we're not counting in our fossil fuel budgets, mm -hmm. right? Um, also, you know, warming in permafrost areas like high Arctic and the Tibetan Plateau, whatever, those are places where it's pretty clear that the warming that's going now is releasing carbon and it's going to continue as as warming goes because it's warming faster in those parts of the world than anywhere else. And so I think those releases are not necessarily counted against the progress that everybody counts on making. So if we're not careful, again, these are maybe not going to dominate, but they, they will make it more and more difficult to get to zero uh, emissions. Yeah. or zero increase in CO2 uh, in the atmosphere. So 
I don't know, my, my old advisor, Wally Broker, he always would say, um, so he's written a couple books about this topic, but he always said we have to learn to take CO2 out of the atmosphere because human beings are not going to give up their luxuries <laughs> just for climate, especially when the climate impacts are not directly on the people who are emitting the most. And so he said you can count on people to be selfish, so we should learn to take CO2 out of the atmosphere because, or, you know, other geoengineering solutions. But I, I, I would like to think that he's wrong. <laughs> so, but I do think we need to put some effort into taking CO2 out of the atmosphere chemically and not just, uh, I mean, we do need to also change the way we do agriculture. If we do that, we can store carbon in soils. Not that much, but you know, we, we lost a lot to the atmosphere, so we degraded a lot of soils and ecosystems, and if we let them restore, then that's, that's will contribute. Um, so at this point, everything helps. And yeah. Yeah, especially because these um, projections or these uh, goals are considering only the, so, so the economical system, yeah. so how the emissions are behaving now, but they are not considering the tipping points, for example. What if uh, at some point before 2050, something with the Amazon forest happens that, yeah. uh, us, that doesn't allow us to... Um, to continue capturing carbon as we as as we are doing so far. So then, yeah. I, uh, I mean, luckily, I think a lot of these changes will be slow. They might be very mm -hmm. fast locally, but the Amazon is huge. So, and it's you know we're not predicting drought to be all the way across the Amazon. We're predicting you know it's going to rain more in some mm -hmm. places, and that might cause more mortality, or wetlands might let you store more carbon. So, I you know. I, I, I'm not as worried about the tipping points, but, but you know, we have warmed the earth by more than a degree now, and you know, that should be causing many ecosystems to be losing carbon. So, um, but we're, instead, we're not seeing that. We're seeing that they're taking up more. So there's still lots to, that we don't understand. And you know, what, what my, well, what Wally would say is we're, we're poking the climate system with a sharp stick <laughs> and it's an angry beast. <laughs> and that's a dangerous thing to do. So, uh, you know, uh, I think we should always behave as if, you know, we're heading towards a cliff and we're not quite sure how far it is. So like, going really fast is not the greatest idea, right? That's a nice metaphor. Yeah. <laughs>
Offspring Magazine, the podcast is brought to you by the Max Planck PhD Net and the Science Communication Working Group known as the Offspring Magazine. The intro outro music is composed by Serena Rancumar and the pre-intro jingle is composed by Gustavo Carrizo. For any feedback, comments or suggestions, please feel free to write us at offspring.podcast at phdnet.mpg.de. Until next week, stay happy, stay healthy, bye bye.